Hi, Saints of God. Welcome to another episode of Talking Bible Truth with Dr. Kamala D. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D., here to help you grow in faith and walk in God's amazing grace. Today is the final episode, which is part two of Dr. Frederick Casey Price's message on Does Hell Exist? If so, how can we avoid it? Part one is on my homepage. If you want to get a full understanding of this message, please go to my homepage and click on part one of Does Hell Exist? If so, how can I avoid it? Now, I want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy part two. This is Dr. Frederick Casey Price, Sr. John chapter four. Last week, we started out teaching you on the subject, go to hell. That's a question, not a statement. Go to hell with a question mark at the end of it. We were talking about the subject of hell. As Christians, we ought to be informed as much as we possibly can about all that pertains to us and to the kingdom of God and to the Christian life. And so hell is a part of that. However, there has been, unfortunately, much misunderstanding about the purpose of hell, where hell is, who's involved in hell, etc., etc., So we have been studying, this is the second installment, if you would, we'll finish it up today, on this subject of hell. We want to find out what it is and what it ain't, where it is and where it ain't, who's going and who ain't, who should and who shouldn't. In other words, what is hell and what's involved in it. Now, we already have covered the fact that in the Gospels and the book of James, there are 12 references to hell, H-E-L-L. We pointed out that, and we looked these up together, that out of the 12, 11 of them were mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then one time the word is mentioned in the book of James. We found out that the word H-E-L-L, as it is used in the New Testament, the literal Greek rendering of the word that is translated hell in the English is the word Gehenna or Gehenna. And it it referred to a geographical place, a valley, the Valley of Hinnon, or sometimes in the Old Covenant under the Hebrew, it was called the Valley of Hinnon, outside the walled city of Jerusalem. It was a geographical place on the face of the earth. But in the Bible, in those different references, it was used as a symbol of a place. And the place in Jerusalem was the place where the trash and the garbage and the refuse of the city was dumped and fires were continually burned there to burn the refuse and to burn the trash. And Jesus would refer to that as a symbolism of the eternity of torment and separation from God that a person would be liable for who did not come into the kingdom of God. And so he used the illustration of the Valley of Hinnon because the people in and around the area where Jesus ministered would understand and be able to relate to that valley because they would know perpetually from children that they saw the fires and the smoke ascending up from the valley and they knew that that was the city dump as it were and so they would be able to relate to the figurative language that he was using. 
However, there are other references in the New Testament to a word called H-E-L-L, but in the case where these words were used, they were mistranslated from the original Greek and referred to a different place, a place called H-A-D-E-S, Hades, or Hades. This place is also a geographical place, but it is not on the surface of the earth. It is a place located in the bowels of the earth, in the very center or core of the earth. It is a place where a person goes after physical death. Now, there are some that have left the idea or the impression that physical death is all there is, or that physical life, rather, is all that there is to a man's existence, and that when a man physically dies, he ceases to exist, that there is nothing beyond that. There is nothing after that, that man dies, he ceases to be conscious, and that's the end of him. But biblically speaking, that is not true. It is religiously true in some quarters. It is denominationally and theologically true in some areas, but it is not quite biblically true. For instance, our Jehovah's Witness brethren, and I only use the names now, not trying to shoot anybody down per se, but simply to relate to something that I'm sure many of you can relate to so that you can understand and know where the source of this kind of doctrine comes from. They teach the idea that when a man dies, that he himself is a soul. They teach that we are souls. And of course, they use Old Testament scripture to substantiate that. And under the Old Testament, men did not understand about the spirit part of man. All they understood about was body and soul. And so many times you will find references to the fact that there were so many souls in the group or so many souls in the party. And years ago, you, you hear some of the older people who, who came a long time ago, maybe our grandparents or your grandparents, and they'll use the term. Sometimes you'd hear the old people talking about someone and they say, oh, that brother John, he's a good old soul. You'd hear a statement like that. And so that idea came that man himself was a soul. He didn't have one. He was a soul. Just another way to refer to man. And they teach that when a man dies, he goes into the grave and that's the end of him. And now the resurrection for him will be that if he comes up in God's remembrance, if he's knocked on enough doors, stood on enough corners, done everything just right, then at the end, God will remember him. If God does remember him, he'll come up out of the grave in resurrection and he will be in the new world. However, if he has not done everything just right and he does not come up into God's remembrance, he just remains dead, just like he never existed. Then we have another group, and these are our Seventh-day Adventist brethren. Again, I only use names simply so that you can have something to relate to, not trying to shoot anybody down per se or uh, be a religious bigot, but just simply to uh, ascertain where certain doctrines come from. Things come from somewhere, you know, and you need to know who's teaching what and who believes what and why. Well, the, the seven-day Adventists believe in what's called soul sleep. They believe that when you die, your soul, which is separate from your body, they believe it's a little bit different than the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that you go in the grave and you sleep, something called soul sleep. But we found out last time from the Bible in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6, 7, and 8, that nobody does. Your soul doesn't sleep. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't say anything about sleeping anywhere. You're, either, you're always conscious. You always will be conscious. You never will be unconscious as far as your conscious existence is concerned because you are more than a physical body. There is something that lives on the inside of the physical body, and that something never ever ceases to be consciously existent. As long as God is existent, you will be consciously aware. 
Physical death is simply the doorway or the transition point from which the man on the inside leaves this physical world, either to go to be with Jesus or to go into the place called Hades. I'm sorry to burst the other bubbles. There is no intermediate or in-between state called limbo, and there is no place called purgatory. Not in the Bible. Now, don't get uptight. I'm simply saying not in the Bible. In religions, yes. In denominations, yes. In certain churches, yes. But not in the Bible. There is no such place mentioned in the Bible. Not in anybody's Bible. Because the ones that believe that, I have read the Bible. It's not in there. It's not, there is no intermediary state. When you leave here, you go either to be with Christ or you go to hell or to Hades. And that's what we're talking about. So that we can understand and find that out. Now, you are a spirit. You don't have one. You are one. You have a soul and you live inside of a body. But you are made up of three parts. Man is unique in that he can contact three worlds at the same time. Through your body with your five senses, you can contact the physical or material universe around you. With your soul, which contains your desire, your will, your emotion, and your intellect, you contact the realm of the intellect or mind and or the realm of the emotions. And that's what forms your personality. That's what makes you, you, and me, me. Then you have a spirit. You are a spirit. And with your spirit, you contact the world of God. So you can contact three worlds. Now, when a man physically dies, what happens is that your spirit and soul separate from your body. There is no loss of consciousness. There is no loss of awareness. In fact, you will be more conscious and more aware than ever before when you physically die because you will have no limitations of your physical body to hinder. When you physically die and breathe your last breath, your spirit and soul like a rocket will leave your body and it will either ascend to be with Christ if you're a Christian or it will descend to be in hell if you're not a Christian. Now you're the one that decides where you go. It's not God. See, some people get upset Again, our Jehovah's Witness brethren, they use this argument. They say, now, 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 dear, dear brother, do you believe that a God of love would send his own children to a fiery burning hell? Is that reasonable? Does that make sense to you? Suppose you were a father. Would you send and consign your children to an eternal burning hell? Well, you know, rationally, you think about that and you say, well, no. Absolutely not. I wouldn't send my kids to hell. So then the argument is then, well, neither will God send anybody to hell. So then there couldn't be any such place as hell and eternal punishment because a good God, a God of love, would never send anybody there. Well, that's all right, rationally and academically. But you see, they missed the point that, number one, God doesn't send anybody to hell except the devil and his angels because that's what hell was made for the devil and his angels. However, God will let you go to hell. He won't send you. If you get there, you sent yourself there. Because God's been doing everything he can for the last 2,000 years to keep you out of there. And if you go there, you go there because you choose to go there. You go there because you reject God's offer of clemency and redemption through Jesus Christ. And if you do reject that, there ain't no other way for you to go. 
no other place for you to go but to hell. But that's not God sending you there. That's you sending yourself there. People always get upset about, about uh, want to get picket lines up and introduce bills to do away with the gas chamber. We ought to do away with capital punishment. It's, un, it's not right that people should be killed. It's not right. We ought to do away with capital punishment. Hey, man, all you got to do is obey the law and capital punishment will do away with yourself. Huh? It's not the judge that sent you to the gas chamber. You sent yourself to the gas chamber. All you had to do was obey the law. All things being equal, if you never commit murder or break or com commit a felony, you'll never go to the gas chamber. So you can't get mad at the, the penal system. Don't get mad at the judge. Don't get mad at the man that arrested you, the FBI or the CIA or the police or whoever it was. That was you that broke the law. Isn't that true? That was you that got the ticket. Oh, sure, there have been uh, injustices performed. We know that. Everybody that's human knows that people can make mistakes, and there have been some mistakes made. But thank God all the situations are not mistakes. And most of the time, 99% of the people in prison are there because they put themselves there. Amen? Because if the, if the law was just putting everybody in prison, most of you would have been put in prison. You just got away with a whole lot of stuff and didn't get caught. I know I did. If I had been sentenced for all the things that I did, I'd be in there a long time. They did a lot of the stuff they didn't catch me for. Just like you. A whole lot of time you went through red lights and all kinds. I mean, on purpose and you didn't get caught. And you got the nerve to get mad because the man gave you a parking ticket and you were over parked. Thing was on red when you got there and red when you came back and you get, get up, upset. <laughs> and get mad at the man. And many times you've gone through red lights, stop signs, and everything else. You did it because you could get away with it, and now you got the nerve to get upset. That was you that gave yourself the ticket. It wasn't the policeman. All he's there for is to enforce the law. Amen. So if a man goes to hell, he sends himself to hell. And the good news is you don't have to go. It's not God's will that you go. See, hell was never made for man in the first place. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And a human, a man, had no business going there. If you go there, you send yourself. And see, God doesn't have any choice about it. Because he gives you the way out. Now, if you won't take it, what's God going to do about it? What can he do about it? Nothing. Not a thing. I mean, you're on an airplane, and the man said, the airplane burning up. You better get out. Here's a parachute. And you said, I ain't put on no parachute. Well, burn, dummy, burn. <laughs> You got the way out and you don't put the parachute on? That's your problem, isn't it? You can't even get mad at the people that made the parachute. You got to put it on. You got to pull the ripcord. You're the one that uses it, not the, the, the people that made it, see? So hell is a real place. We're going to talk a little bit more about it. But I want to talk a little bit more about what you really are so that you can see the enormity of this thing that we're dealing with. See, you are a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body. And you will always be consciously existent. You'll always be alive, not your physical body, but your spirit and soul, which lives inside of your body. And you're going to, if you're a Christian, when you die, I mean instantaneously, as fast and then you can snap your finger like a rocket, you will leave that body, your spirit and soul will rush out of your body and rush right to the throne of God to be with Jesus in paradise. If you're not a Christian and you die, your spirit and soul will leave your body instantaneously, faster than you can snap your finger, and it'll rush down to the core of the earth, down to a place called Hades, or hell. Just that bad. Because your soul your, and spirit has to be somewhere. 
When the body dies, it can no longer remain in the body. It has to go to another place, and it'll seek one of those two places. And in this life, right now, while you're alive and conscious physically, is when you make the choice as to where your spirit and soul will go when you stop being physically conscious. Now, the spirit and the soul are like the wet with the water. If you get water, you get wet. You really can't shave off the wet and just have the water because wet is the characteristic of water. Well, the soul is the characteristic of the spirit, and they actually go hand in hand. We may talk about them separately to define their function so that you can see and understand how they operate. But the spirit and the soul go hand in hand. However, the spirit and the soul can be separated from the body, like the wet and the water can be separated from the glass. You can have a glass with the water and the wet in it. The water and the wet are separate from the glass. And you can take the glass, turn it over, and pour out the wet in the water, put the glass back on the shelf. Now, that's all that happens at physical death, is you take the body and put it right back on the shelf where it came from, which is the earth, earth to earth and dust to dust, ashes to ashes, for out of the ground thou were taken, and until the dust thou shalt return. And the spirit and the soul leaves your body and goes to be either with Jesus or into hell. Now, let's show this a little more clearly from the Bible. John chapter 4. Now, John, speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, this is a brief review on what we covered last time, but it's, I think the, the principle here is so important that we need to state it again so that people can really get it into their hearts and understand it. In the fourth chapter of John, uh, Jesus was talking to this woman at the well in Samaria, Syker's well in Samaria, and they got into a conversation about places to worship. And the woman said, well, we know that our forefathers told us that in here, here in the hills of Samaria is the place to worship. And then she said, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, the time is coming and is here now when the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, if anybody ought to know what God the Father is, Jesus ought to know. Because Jesus was the Son of God and was with the Father in the very beginning. If you read John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If Jesus was with the Father in the beginning, then Jesus ought to know what the Father is. He ought to know whether God is a mind, or whether God is a spirit, or whether God is a cow, or whether God is a frog. Jesus ought to know. And Jesus said, God is a spirit. And yet there are people right now today, around this city, and around this nation, that is standing up, doing what I'm doing, telling people that God is a mind, and he ain't got no better sense than to believe that garbage. I have to say it that way because that's what it is, garbage from the pit of hell itself. Jesus said God is a spirit. He is not a mind. He is a spirit. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say God is a mind. Men have said that, but not the Bible. Mind and spirit are two entirely different things. Number one, mind is located in the soul realm and not in the spirit realm of a man anyway. So right there, that shows you that they're different. Now, let me show you that you are a spirit. Turn in, to, in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and the 26th verse. 
Now, in the book of Genesis, this is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit gathered around the great conference table in heaven and discussing the creation of the world and the creation of man. And God speaks up. And he says in the 26th verse, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God said, Let us make man in our image. Not in the image of the animal, but in our image, after our likeness. So all we have to do then is find out what is God like. Now, an image is a replica of the real thing. A statue could be an image. A photograph could be an image. A painting could be an image. A reflection in the mirror could be an image. In other words, the image is the replica of the real thing. Therefore, in order to be an image, it has to look exactly like the real thing. So that means then that either man looks like God or God looks like man. Well, let's say that God looks like man. If God looks like man, then that means that God would have to have a white face, a black body, red arms, brown legs, and yellow feet. Now, why do I say it like that? Because anthropologically speaking, there are five basic classifications of homo sapien man on the face of planet Earth. Out of those five basics come all of the rest of the derivations of color and features and whatever. Those are the five basic ones, white, black, red, brown, and yellow. So if God looks like man, then that's what God must look like. Well, you know, that would be a monstrosity. That would be a monstrosity. So then man must look like God. Well, what is God? We just read it in John 4, 24. Jesus said, God is a what? Spirit. So then we must be like God. Because see, God said, God didn't say, let us make us after man's image. He said, let us make man after our image. So that means we must look like God. God doesn't look like us. So Jesus said, God is a spirit. So if God is a spirit, we must be spirits. And we are. We are spirits. We have soul. And we live inside of physical bodies. Thank God that we are made. That's what the Bible means when it says made in the image and likeness of God. It's not talking about your physical body. It's talking about the real you, the spirit man that lives back here on the inside looking out through these windows. And I wish that the church of Jesus Christ across the world would understand this principle, that they would get educated and taught in the word of God to the extent that they would understand this. If they did understand it, there would be no more racial prejudice ever again, at least within the context of the body of Christ, those who claim to be Christians. Amen. There are still some churches I can't go to in the United States of America because I'm black. There are still some churches, places where I cannot go to church because I'm black. And yet those people say they're Christians. Well, see, what they're doing is looking at the houses. They're not even looking at what's on the inside. You see, you are the same color as God. Whatever color God is, that's the color we are. Because all spirit beings are the same color. Now, whatever color they are, and that is irrelevant and immaterial, if it's all right with God, it's all right with me. See, And all you're really looking at right now is the house that I live in. My house might be black, your house might be white, somebody else's house might be brown. And isn't it interesting how we can live in a neighborhood where there are houses all up and down the street, and it's all right if there's a green house on the corner and a yellow one across the street from it, and down the block a red brick house, and up the street from that one trimmed in orange or whatever, and everybody can live in the same block. No problem. Nobody gets upset. Oh, you know, we got to do something. There's a green house up on the corner. We got to get rid of that. 
All the houses in this neighborhood ought to be painted white. And they got a green one up. We got to get rid of that. No, everybody's happy because people know that everybody has a choice of color. Everybody has a variety. Well, you know what? If man has a variety, just look around you right now. Look at all the variety of clothes. Here's Billy. He's got on a, a blue suit. And here I've got on whatever color this one is. Frank's got on a gray color suit. And here somebody else got on a rustled brown colored suit. Here's a man down here that's got a white jacket on. People like variety. And isn't it interesting that man can have variety, but poor old God, he can't have any variety. Well, if man likes a change in color, God could like a change in color. So he made one white, one red, one brown, one yellow, and one, and, and one white so that he could have a little variety. Isn't that all right with, is that all right with you? Well, it must be all right with God. See, the real you is inside. And we are the same color that God is. Whatever color that is, that's the color that God is. Now, in that spirit world where God lives, and that spirit man that lives on the inside of you, that spirit man has substance, tangibility, shape, and form. But it's a different kind of substance than this chair. This chair is made out of matter, our scientists tell us. It's matter, and it can be detected with human sensory mechanisms because it's composed of matter. But in the spirit world, God, spirit beings have tangible particles that they are made up just like made up of just like this chariot. The only difference is in a different world. God has substance. God has tangibility in the spirit world. Now let's prove that out. Turn in your Bible because the better you understand this, the better you understand yourself, and the better you'll understand hell and heaven. All right, in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. In the fifth chapter of John, and uh, we will look at the... Thirty-seventh verse. Jesus is speaking here. And this is what he says. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his what? Shame. Nor seen his what? Shame. Well, then he must have a shape to be seen. Jesus said, you have not seen his shape. So his shape must be seeable. Huh? But yet Jesus is the one that said God is a spirit. And yet Jesus said God has a shape. And he said you haven't seen his shape. So if he has a shape, he must have some substance to him. All right. Turn to another passage of scripture. Look at the book of Revelation chapter 4. The book of Revelation chapter 4. You see, if you don't understand the threefold nature of man and the fact that you are a, an eternal spirit and that you live, you live forever, then hell doesn't mean anything to you. Really, heaven won't mean anything either. Because heaven and hell are spiritual places where spirit beings dwell. And if you don't understand yourself, who you are, and how God has created and made you, you really can't. You can hear the word hell and you can hear the word heaven, but they don't really have any real meaning to you because you can't relate to them. But if you come to understand who you really are, then you can understand the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. Now, in the book of Revelation, this is the Apostle John. He was on the island of Patmos, and he had a vision. Let's begin reading at John chapter, or Revelation, rather, chapter 4, about John on the Isle of Patmos, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. After this I heard, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet, 
talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must hereafter, which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. Now notice he was in the what? In the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now notice he said one sat on. Didn't say six sat on or four, five. He said one sat on the throne. Now notice that he said sat. Setting is different from standing, is different from running, is different from lying down. He said one sat. So apparently whoever the one was, he must have had some kind of shape to him or it. We're not going to say he's a him yet, but it must have had some shape because John could tell that it wasn't lying and it wasn't running and it wasn't standing. He said he was sitting or he sat on the throne. Okay. And verse 3. And he, uh-oh, he. That's a personal pronoun that describes masculine gender, not feminine, didn't say she, didn't say he, she, or she, he. Well, I'm not trying to be funny. There are some that are he, she's, and some that are she, he's. And there are some that are she's and some that are he's. All right. And he said, and he. So he knew whatever, whatever it was, that one that sat on the throne, he must have had some shapely characteristics that were masculine and not feminine, or else John would have said, well, it, or that thing. But he said he. That means masculine. Is that, would you agree with that? All right. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And around about the throne were four and twenty elders or four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now look at the fifth chapter of Revelation. And let's read at verse one because John is continuing. He says, and I saw in the right hand of him in the what? In the what? Hand. So this tells us that the one that John called a he that sat on the throne had a left hand. No, he had a left hand. See, he had to have the left hand in order to distinguish it from the right hand. I didn't make a mistake. I said what I wanted to say. He had to have a left hand. If you don't have a left hand, then you can't say right hand. Just say hand. But when you say right, that is to distinguish it from the left, isn't it? Isn't that right? He only had one hand, you just say hand. I saw in his hand. He didn't have but one, so I saw it in his hand. When he said right hand, that means that the being, the him that sat on the throne, had a left hand. Well, that's at least the left and the right. That's the same thing we have, isn't it? All right, watch. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now notice that he had a hand. If he had a hand, he had to have a wrist for the hand to be attached to, had to have a forearm for the wrist to be attached to, had to have an upper arm for the forearm to be attached to, had to have a shoulder for the upper arm to be attached to, and you had to have a shoulder girdle. If you have a shoulder girdle, it's almost a description of a torso, which sounds like you're describing a man. Yet this is over in the spirit world. And yet, this individual was a he, he could be seen, and he had a hand. And yet it was in the spirit world. All right, let's look at another passage, and this is where we left off last time. Turn to Exodus chapter 33. 
the book of Exodus, the 33rd chapter. Now, in Exodus, we have the account of Moses going up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And while he was up there, Moses was just like any of us, or certainly like I, in that he was curious and wanted to know. And he asked questions. And he wanted to, he wanted to ask something of God. In fact, he wanted to see God. I don't blame him. I do too. He wanted to see God. And this is what he said. Exodus 33, and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 18. Moses is speaking. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, it didn't say it said, he, masculine gender. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, thou canst not see my face. Thou canst not see my face for there shall no man see me and live. He said, thou shall not see my face. The very fact that he said that means that he must have had a face to be seen because if he didn't have a face, he couldn't see him anyhow. So he said, you can't see my face. And then there is another scripture, and I'm sure many of you read it, where it said the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the earth. Well, the eyes are usually located in the cranial cavity in the head, and the head usually has a face on it. All right, now notice, he says <clears throat> in verse 20, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passes by that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock and will cover thee with my hand. So he had a hand. I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand and thou shalt see my back parts. Didn't say back part singular, said back parts plural. Hmm? Well, actually, from the back, anybody, you look at it from the back, you can see head, ears, hair, shoulder, arm, legs, feet. So that is plural, isn't it? More than one thing. He said, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So that means God has a face to be seen. So we see here a description of a person. However, this is over in the spirit world. So you are made in the image of God, see? And like I said, see, living back here on the inside of this thing sitting on the bench here is the real you. When you physically die, that spirit and soul, as I say, will rush out of your body like lightning and will flash to be with God or go into hell. What you do in this life determines which way you go. And the decision is all and completely yours. And you know I like that. I like the fact, can't anybody tamper with this decision? Nobody can mess with it. I don't have anybody to blame. It's my whole, total, complete decision. I can go to be with the Lord. It's my choice. Can't use a cop out. The white man can't keep me from making a choice. The black man, the brown man, the yellow or the blue man. Nobody can. My wife, my children, nobody. The government, nobody. I can make that choice. I like that. It is my choice to make. But either way you go, you are the one that's responsible. Either heaven or hell. One is just as real as the other. Now, let's move on. 
in the day in which Jesus lived, both hell or Hades and paradise were located in the same place. And that is in the very bowels or the heart of the earth. We read a scripture last time where the uh, Israelites came to Jesus and they said, show us a sign. And Jesus said, there shall be no sign given to this adulterous and sinful generation, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the whale, so shall man be three days and three, or so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now the heart of the earth is the center or core of the earth. You wouldn't call a six foot hole in the ground the heart of the earth. And usually when a person's buried, that's about the extent of it, maybe six feet down, eight feet at the most. But that's, you surely wouldn't call that the heart of the earth. This earth is very large. It's 25,000 miles around the equator. If you went from the North Pole right through the middle of the earth down to the South Pole, you'd be going a little while. It's a pretty good distance. So a little six-foot hole in the ground would be far from the center and core of the earth. So when Jesus said, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth, the heart of the earth is the very center and core, the bowels of the earth. When we say the heart of the problem, what do we mean? The center and core of the problem, of that around which everything else revolves. When we say the heart of the million, what do we mean? The center and core of the million, the heart of the tree. What do we mean? The center and core of the tree. When Jesus used the term heart of the earth, he meant the center and core of the earth. And it's interesting, as I pointed out before, that even in the natural, forgetting about spiritual things, forgetting about the Bible, forgetting about God, if you just use geological consensus, you will find out that the geologists tell us that the further down you go, the hotter it gets. Ain't that coincidental? The further down you go, the hotter it gets. And then they try to stick that junk on us and tell us that the earth is 50 billion years old and it took 50 billion years for it to cool in and it ain't cooled down yet. Now, that's you. who's going to believe that? Man, after 50 billion years, anything would have cooled off. Huh? Ever, ever since they have measured thermal heat down in the core of the earth, from the day they measured it up until now, they, it hadn't gotten any cooling. It's still hot. It's still hot. And it's interesting that this man in our story that we read about the first time, and we're going to go back to that in a moment, he said it was hot down there where he was. Now, Jesus went down into the heart of the earth, into the very core, into hell itself to serve the sentence that each one of us should have served. You know, some time ago, some guy wrote a song and he said, I should have been crucified. It's a beautiful song, you know, melodious and all that dumb song. What good would it have done anybody for you to have been crucified? All we would have had is a dead you. Crucifixion wasn't a punishment that man should pay for sin, for Adam's sin. If that were true, the two thieves hanging on either side of Jesus could have accomplished that. It wasn't physical, uh, physical death. The crucifixion just happened to be the method of capital punishment in that day. And Jesus, because of trumped up charges, was accused of a capital crime. If it had been in California, it would have been the gas chamber. Back there, crucifixion was capital punishment. And all that the cross did was give Jesus a chance to physically die. Why? Because it's not until you physically die that your spirit and soul are released from your body. And when he died, his spirit and soul went down into hell or Hades. And down there in the chains of darkness, 
under the control of Satan for three days and three nights, Jesus suffered the eternal punishment that you and I should have suffered throughout eternity, completely and totally separated from God. That's what hell was all about. That's what Jesus dying was all about, to go into hell and suffer for us. And then after three days and three nights, the great judge of the universe banged his gavel down on the great judgment bar of all time and eternity and said, it is enough. It is finished. And when God said that, the Holy Spirit, like an arrow, was dispatched from heaven down into the pit of hell itself, burst asunder, broke the doors open, ripped the chains off of Jesus, and Jesus rose triumphant and became the first man to be born again. To set us free. To set us free. Now, when he did that, when he did that, he opened the door for all men to become the sons of God and to escape that punishment of hell. Why? Because he had taken it upon himself for us. But the only way that an individual gets the benefit out of what Jesus did for him is that he has to accept Jesus as his Savior and his Lord. That's the way you get the benefit out of it. Now, if you reject that, then you have to go into hell itself and pay the price for yourself. Now, in the day in which Jesus lived, both hell and paradise were located in the heart of the earth, across from each other. I'll give you a good illustration of it. In, in, the, in the pit of hell itself, there were two places. In fact, let's read it. Let's look at Luke chapter 16 again, and we'll read it here. I think it'll uh, have a little better, a little more meaning to you. Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> and... Uh, Beginning with verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom was figurative language for the place of rest and repose. Since Abraham was the father of the faithful, and he was the beginning of the nation of Israel, and he was also the beginning of God dealing in a covenant relationship that was going to ultimately bring Jesus Christ into the world that would be the redeemer for all of mankind, the place where the departed spirits of the dead went under the Old Testament was to a place called paradise, otherwise known to the Israelite as Abraham's bosom, a place of rest a place, place of repose. And so that's why it said that this beggar died and he went to Abraham's bosom. All right, let's go on. It says, verse 22, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell, not Abraham's bosom, but in hell or Hades, H-A-D-E-S, he lift up his eyes being in torments. Well, he had to be conscious to be tormented. You can't torment something that's unconscious. So he was conscious. But the Bible said he died and was buried, and yet something went on living. That was the spirit and soul part of him. That was the real him. The house he lived in was buried. But him, the real him, was still alive, very much alive. It says, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and see of Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. Can you imagine? In fact, there really is no way to imagine it. The torment that this man must have been going through in this place. Because this man was so tormented. He was so tormented that he said, if Lazarus were just to dip the tip. See, he didn't ask for a handful of water. 
He didn't ask for a whole finger full of water. He just said the tip. Dip his finger in the tip of water to cool my tongue. The man was saying that it's so bad here, it's so hot here, it's so tormenting here, that even a tip, fingertip of water would be better than what I have now. Whew. I'm sure glad I'm not going to that place. Ooh, listen. Verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember. See, you're going to have memory. Oh, what a terrible thing it is to have memory in some situations. What an awful thing it's going to be. For even some of you that are here today, some of you came under duress. There were relatives or friends or maybe your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or your wife or some relative or friend invited you to come to Crenshaw Christian Center today. And you sitting here, you've been chafing it a bit. You've just been uptight and been out of shape about it. You're so uptight, but you said, I'm going to finally get them off my back. I'm going to go on down there at that dumb church and hear what that dumb preacher is saying. I ain't going to listen to nothing he's saying, but I'm just going to go to get these folks off my back. And isn't it going to be a terrible thing? And here you are sitting in here today, right within your grasp is salvation. Right in your grasp is the love of God through Jesus Christ to set you free. But you're sitting here finding fault, criticizing, mad because you're here, been out of shape about it, and one day you're going to look up like that rich man did and find yourself in hell, and the thought's going to come back to you, my God, I was in that church that day, that's what that preacher was talking about, and I just sat there and criticized and laughed, and it's too late now. <laughs> that's going to be terrible. That's awful. That's going to be terrible. He said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Now, here's the way it was down there in the pit. It's still like that down there now, except paradise is no longer in the heart of the earth. It's empty. But there were like maybe, let's say, two compartments. One side was Hades and one side was paradise. Like, let's say this side over here is Hades, this side is paradise. Or oh, wait a minute, we'll say this side is Hades and this side is paradise. Make all of you happy. <laughs> then right down the middle, there was a great gulf fixed, see? Now, he said the gulf was fixed, which meant it was unmovable. See, he didn't say there was a loosely hanging gulf. He said it was fixed. That means you can't change it. He said nobody on the Hades side can move over to the paradise side. Nobody on the paradise side can move over to the Hades side. Hmm? Great gulf fixed. So I want to say to you, some of you that have been dabbling in astrology and seances and Ouija boards and tarot cards and all that other stuff trying to contact the spirits of the dead, you've been deceived. Those are familiar spirits and there ain't nobody coming back from the dead telling you nothing and that vision you think you had of your grandma wasn't your grandma. God's not sending grandma back. If God sends anybody to you, it'll be the Holy Spirit or an angel or Jesus himself will appear to you. There ain't nobody coming back from the dead. That's a hoax played by the devil to suck you in and make you think that you're contacting the spirits of the dead. You're not contacting the spirits of the dead. You're contacting what is referred to as familiar spirits, and they are impersonators. They are impersonating people. They know about people because they follow you around all your life, and they know intimate details about your life, and they tell that so-called spirit medium that's sitting there in a trance. They tell that person that information, and they spew it out, and it makes you think that you're talking to the spirit of your long-departed grandpa. You, you talking to a demon and don't even know it. The man said, ain't nobody coming back on the other side. Now, down in the underworld, paradise and Hades were both there. Now, all the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jeremiah, Daniel, etc., etc., when they died, 
they, their spirits went into hell. I said when they died, only two of them didn't die, and that was Enoch and Elijah. But the rest of them died with a hope of the coming of the Messiah. They didn't see the coming of the Messiah. So when they died, their spirits and souls went from their bodies down into paradise, the paradise section of the underworld. That was the air-conditioned part. They went down to the side that was air-conditioned. That was the paradise section. But now since Jesus rose from the dead, he took everybody out. See, when he rose from the dead and burst asunder from the bowels of the earth, he was the only one that had the ability to cross over from the Hades side into the paradise section. And he went over there and announced to all the fellows like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all those people and said, redemption has been effected. Divine justice is satisfied. Get your clothes together. We're packing up and moving out. We're going on up to glory. Uh, now, let me show you, turn to Ephesians now, chapter 4, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says in verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, that is Jesus, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, literally in the Greek, instead of it saying he led captivity captive, it says literally that he led captive captivity. Now, who was being held in captivity? The spirits and souls of the Old Testament saints. So what Jesus did is he released them from the bowels of the earth, from the paradise section of the underworld, and he took them with him up to the third heaven, and that's where paradise is now. He changed locations. Huh? He changed locations, and paradise is now located in heaven. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the Apostle Paul give, gives us a little insight into this. In verse 1, Paul says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. See, the in, see, you look so much in the spirit like you do in the physical that it was difficult for Paul to tell whether he was in his body or out of his body. See what I mean? Because the man on the inside corresponds very much to the man on the outside. See, we saw that from just reading about the rich man and Lazarus. See, the rich man looked up and saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Notice that he didn't mix Lazarus up with Joe Blow. You notice he didn't make a mistake and call Abraham Moses. Somehow he knew that was Abraham and he sure knew Lazarus because Lazarus used to be outside of his gate. So there must be something about the spirit and soul part of you that looks something like the physical part that somebody would know. Hey, that's Frank Stewart. I know that's Frank. That's not Billy Ingram. That's Frank. See, and that that was the way it was. Now, so Paul says. Verse 2, I know a man, or I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such a one caught up to the third heaven. There ain't no such thing as seven heavens. It's third heaven. There's three heavens. The first heaven is the heaven that's called actually is the atmosphere or the firmament around this physical earth. And then between here and the third heaven where God dwells is another area that's literally referred to as the heavenlies. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is where God lives. All right. He says in verse three, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up, not down, but up into what? Paradise. 
and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. What he was saying is that I saw something, I heard things, and there was no way that I could describe them in earthly terms, so I, he said it was unlawful for me to utter. The thing was, he couldn't describe it. You saw that in reference to John trying to describe John on the throne. What in the world did he mean? I saw somebody on the throne, it looked like a sardine stone. I mean, what, you know, what does that tell us? Nothing. But what he was saying is that what he saw was so far beyond anything in the earth world, there was nothing to relate to. I mean, if, if you were going to tell old Christopher Columbus about what the Queen Mary ocean liner looks like, what would you use to describe it to him? There was nothing in his day. I mean, the little Nina and Pinta and Santa Maria, they're about as big as rowboats. You know, how would you describe the Queen Mary ocean liner, the Queen Mary to Columbus? What would you use to relate it to? Nothing, because in his day there wasn't anything that big. You try to tell him, well, old Chris, there's a boat here that's a half a mile long. How in the world could he comprehend that? You try to tell Orville and Wilbur Wright what a 747 jumbo jet looks like. What are you going to relate it to? See, there wasn't anything in the day in which Orville and Wilbur lived that you could use as a comparison. You, how are you going to tell him what it looks like? And so what John and, 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 and what Paul was saying is that I saw things and I, there just wasn't any way. It was, on the, it was against the law, as it were, for me to talk about. I couldn't talk about it. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you what it looked like. But he said he was in paradise. Now, that's where you go as a Christian. The moment you die physically, your spirit and soul leave your body and go to heaven. To the third heaven, a suburb of heaven. And that's where you will be until the great day when the kingdom of God is established on this earth. The kingdom of heaven is established on this earth. In the meantime, if you are not a Christian, when you die, your spirit and soul go down into Hades. Down into hell. Now those are just facts. Now see somebody say, ah, there goes the preacher trying to use the scare tactics on us. I'm not trying to use any scare tactics on you. Go to hell if you want to. I mean, even after I get finished talking, you can still go to hell if you want to. You know, but don't blame it on God. That's the point I'm trying to get you to see. If you go, you're going yourself. Now, let's look at another scripture. Turn to Luke's gospel now. And uh, we'll look at the 23rd chapter, Luke 23. Now, in the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we have the account of Jesus on the cross. And he's, in, he's holding a dialogue with one of the thieves hanging beside him. In Luke 23, beginning with the 39th verse, it says, And one of the malefactors which was hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? seeing that thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paradise. Now, there's a little misunderstanding here. Remember, as I've said before, in many of your major Greek manuscripts, there were no punctuation marks, no capitalization, no chapter divisions, and no verse designation. And I submit unto you that the comma there should not be there. In that 43rd verse, it should read like this. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, comma, shalt thou be with me in paradise. See, Jesus wasn't going to paradise then. And he wasn't going to enter into his kingdom then. He's going down to hell to serve three days and three nights. 
But he did say, you will be with me in paradise based on this man's confession of, of faith. See, the man confessed Christ as Lord. Not in the same sense that we do, but when he said, Lord. He didn't say, hey, man, when you come into your kingdom. He said, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom. He acknowledged him as Lord, and God counted it to him for righteousness. And he said, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom. Well, Jesus wasn't going into his kingdom then. Jesus was going into hell to pay the price for man's redemption. He was going down to Hades, not, not to paradise or to the kingdom. But he did say, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. So he took him out of there with him when he went back up and led captivity captive. Now, nobody ever ascended up to heaven on their own power except Jesus. Until after Jesus did it. After Jesus did it, all of us then, when we die, our spirits and souls will ascend up to be with God. Now, God's not going to take you. And we need to get something straight. All these people talking about, well, the law took him. The law took him. Listen, friend, if God takes you, you're going alive. Because everybody that God ever took, they went out of here alive. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, and the man walked right into glory. And Elijah, God sent a fiery chariot and picked him up while he was alive, walking through the fields with Elisha, his understudy. And then Jesus, God sent the heavenly elevator down on top of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus stepped on board, released the electronic energy from his body, caught gravitation in his fingertip, and went on up to heaven, praise God. Huh? And so he was the only one that ascended up. See, to ascend means to go up, but you go up under your own power. He did it. But thank God, because of what he did, we can now, when we die, God sends the angels down here for you. And the angels will escort you into glory. I mean, you go up and talk about pomp and circumstances. Hallelujah. You go up to glory with the bells of heaven ringing and the holy angels escorting you on your way up. But God's not going to take you. Now, he'll let you go if you want to go. But God's not the one that kills people. God's the one that gives life. He's not taking you, but if you want to go, he'll let you go. But don't blame it on God. But that's the natural, that, that's what's involved in you being who you are. When you die, your spirit and soul will leave your body and go to be with Christ. Oh, what a glorious time that is going to be. Now, let's turn to our, in our Bible to the book of Revelation. Because, see, you think, the, the 20th chapter, you think that hell is bad. You've been sitting up here chafing at the bit, getting hot under the collar, about me talking about hell, but friend, hell is only a temporary place. Huh? That's right. Hell's not the place that's bad. There's another place worse than hell. And everybody that's in hell is going to be in the other place. But now we know that hell is bad because that man was down there. And that man said, I'm being tormented in the flames. Now, somebody wants to argue about, well, Brother Price, do you believe that it was literal fire? Really, I, I haven't taken the time to even try to figure out, don't really care because I don't plan to go. I don't care what it was or is. The man said that he was being tormented and him was there and him ought to know. Isn't that right? The man said, I'm being tormented in the flames. What kind of flame? I don't know. And I don't care because I'm not going. Huh? You tell me after you get to write me a letter and tell me what it's like. Huh? <laughs> write me a letter. I, I don't want to know. I'll take your word for it. Whatever you say, I'll accept that. All right. Now here in Revelation chapter 20, and let's begin reading at verse 13. This is John again. He's still seeing the vision. He says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. 
and they were judged every man according to their works. Now, see, this is the this these are the 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 wicked dead, not the children of God. The children of God are already in the in the family of God. They're already all right. But this is talking about the wicked dead. Verse fourteen. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the death. Ooh, one was bad enough. He's talking about the second one. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Mm. Now, let's look at verse 10 so that you can see the duration of this. In verse 10 it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Here's where the brimstone comes from. Fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You know how long forever is? You can't compute it. I used to live in Santa Monica, and they used to have a big fat bird called a pelican that used to be very plentiful around the coastline. You don't see him very much anymore. And he was a very lazily flying bird. He just flied along, flew along like this, and just barely, almost not even moving his wings. He wasn't as graceful as a, uh, as a seagull, but this was a pelican. Now, you want to get an idea how long that eternity, that being tormented forever and ever and ever and ever is. Think about a pelican going to every desert of the world and picking up one grain of sand and flying to the sun 93 million miles away and flying on one wing and bringing that grain of sand to the surface of the sun, coming back to the earth and picking up another grain of sand. Then after he has emptied every desert and every seashore and every coastline and every riverbed, taking one grain at a time up to the sun, 93 million miles away, coming back to the earth and getting another grain, flying on one wing, after he had emptied every riverbed, every coastline and every desert, you would be one minute in eternity. Now, that's the only way you can relate to that because it is so outside the bounds of human understanding and reason. But he said they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. That means they're going to be conscious. But dear friend, the good news is that if you are here today and you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to go to hell, neither do you have to go to the lake of fire, but you can be redeemed and you can become a child of God and you can do it today in the name of Jesus. Praise God. This concludes this message by Dr. Frederick K.C. Price. Well, I think that was one of the most powerful messages I have ever heard as it relates to hell. I think Dr. Frederick K.C. Price confirmed as it relates to the Bible, the Holy Bible, that hell does exist it is located in the heart of the earth, and the only way to avoid it is by confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's just that simple. God made the playing field leveled to where any man who comes to Christ can avoid hell. Now, I don't know what you're waiting for. It doesn't matter what you've done. The only sin that will never be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But anything else that you have done, that you have been carrying around in your heart thus far, Jesus Christ died on that cross for that sin. And if you come to him today, God promises you 
that you have eternal life and you will avoid the pits of hell. Now, if you want a copy of message one and message two, all you have to do is go to www.fakedome.org, click on the store section and type in the search engine FP-501 or you can type in the search engine go to hell with a question mark on the end. Either way, this CD will pop up. It's it's great. Um, it's a great studying tool to have in your um, study arsenal. I've been had it for a couple of years. And when I wanted to teach on how to avoid hell, does it exist? If so, you can avoid it by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. I realized I had it, listened to it, and decided to let Frederick K.C. Price Sr. teach it. So I hope you enjoyed this message. I want you to join me on Sunday where my message will be walking in the fruit of the spirit. So until next time, I am Dr. Kamala D. Remember, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this is Dr. Kamala D. coming to you with peace and love.